So Genesis uh, chapter 11, we are picking up where we left off a few weeks back. Last week, uh, we had a pinch hitter, in, uh, but he, he preached like a starter, didn't he? <laughs> Phil uh, found out at the last minute he had to preach because I was away for a part of the time and Pastor Mark was sick. And so uh, he came in and uh, preached and the Lord led him to John 17 to preach an incredible message and a timely message about the undeserved unity that God calls us to as a people. God calls us to an undeserved unity with himself first and foremost. And that's a unity that we've never deserved in relationship with the Holy God. We're made for it, but we walked away from it and rebelled against it. And God calls us back to that unity, invites us to that undeserved unity with him. And then Pastor Phil taught us that we can then fight for a unity with each other. Fight for a unity that, even with those who don't deserve it, a unity with each other. And so, uh, I was just blessed by that message. I hope you were too. And then today, we're, we're going to dive back into Genesis. And as we do that, we're going to start at a place of a people unified. But this time, it's not unified for a good reason. This time, it's, it's people unified in opposition to God and His will. And that's never going to work out very well. So, we're going to start diving into uh, uh, to this um, chapter, starting in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. We'll read through the passage, and then we'll come back and talk about it. It says this, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see this city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And confuse their language, and they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over, uh, scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And we're going to stop our reading there for now. And so we come to this passage in. Genesis chapter 11, and it can be confusing if you were paying attention, um, in, in chapter 10, Phil didn't read all of this a few weeks back, but chapter 10, uh, as it goes into a genealogy, and it goes into what some people call the table of nations, and it talks about how the nations spread out and the people spread out and how they were separated by race and by culture and by land and by language. And it says there were a whole bunch of different languages among the people. And now it says now the whole world had one language. So what's going on here? Well, I, I think what Moses did as he wrote Genesis was he paves the way in chapter 10 to say this is how people scattered over the earth. This is how people spread out and became multiple races and cultures and languages And now he's going to back up and say, now that you know what happens as people spread out and fill the earth like God told them to, let let me back up and tell you how this thing started. And and he's going to give us the context for what happens there. And it's going to go back, and and so we don't know exactly when this happened in the genealogy 
of chapter 10, but we could go back to chapter 10, verse 8, and it points us to this guy with his unfortunate name of Nimrod, but don't, don't point that out to him because he became a mighty warrior on the earth. I guess I would too if I had a name like that. You got to make up for it somehow. He became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it's said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. before. He must have been really mighty because that's what they have to say about him. And, it, and he was also a king. And it says the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Arkad, uh, Akkad, and Kauna in Shinar. And it was that first city, it says, that was the start of his kingdom was Babylon. That's the same Babel here in chapter 11. The same city, this was the start of it. And so God is saying, uh, Moses is saying, this is where this kingdom was. This is how it started in this land. And it says this, now the whole world at that time, when they started in Babel, they had one language and a common speech. So they're united. They're united for one common purpose, and we're going to see what those purposes are. And it says this, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And this is the kind of stuff we pass right by, right? Okay, fine, they moved east. Let's get on to where they were going next, because it's just telling us the direction they went, right? There's nothing important there. And yet, I, I think we need to stop here, because I think there is. See, don't you sometimes wish the Bible told us more? We can look at, it, look at a passage like this as it talks about the Tower of Babel. And it can be a little confusing as to what exactly did they do wrong? Why did God scatter them? I wish the Bible shared more. And, and we're used to books that we read today where they're very descriptive and they give us the, the full context. And that's just not the way they wrote back then. Back when, they, back when Moses was writing, there was a different style of writing back then. And, and, and one scholar says this about the way they used to write back then, about Hebrew narrative. He says, because Hebrew narrative is restrained rather than wordy. It's restrained. It doesn't say a whole lot. It just gets to the point and goes on. Because it's restrained rather than wordy, the words used are typically pregnant with significance. This demands that the reader pay close attention to the details of a story. Significance may be found in a single descriptive word or lack of a word where one might be expected. So, so when we wish the Bible would say more, actually the Bible says plenty. A lot of times we just don't notice it. Because down to the very words can be important or the lack of a word can be important. You can point back to a simple example to this. One, one place to notice this is back in Genesis 1. Where God created the earth and it says again and again and again. What does it say? It says he, he said it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, and then it was very good. <laughs> the pattern changes. Moses is saying, look, pay attention to this. You can think about, why does the pattern change? Why was it very good? Oh, because it's complete now. Because it's whole. And then he gets to the next chapter, and God says, it's not good. What's not good? That man's alone. See, as he, he points to, these, to the subtle use of these words, he's saying, wake up, pay attention, there's something I want you to know here. And so what does this have to do with, with this? That they, as the people moved eastward, we would pass that right by just saying, well, that's the direction they moved. But we've been told that people moved east before. Several times, in fact, in, in, in Scripture, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they were cast out of the garden. Do you know where the angel was put to block their way back in? 
It was put on the east side of the garden because they were heading east, away from the presence of the Lord. And then, then you move on to chapter 4, and it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And in a few chapters later, Abraham and Lot are going to separate, and Lot is going to go east. He's going to go to a place that's rich in resources and that's really poor spiritually. And so we can pass this right by as just a geographic direction. Oh, they were heading east. That's not a big deal. And I think Moses is pointing out, no, it is a big deal. They're heading away from God. And as we read this, just like others who moved east, Moses is saying, wake up, pay attention. You already know they're, this is, they're not headed a good direction. This is not going to work out well. And as they're headed east, it's a warning sign. And I wonder what warning signs God puts in our lives that we're headed the wrong direction. That we think we're just going on and moving on and doing fine. But God puts in a warning sign that we are headed in a way that is apart from his presence, in a way that is apart from his will. See, see when we sin, we like our ruts. Just like the people kept heading east and they kept heading east and they kept heading east. We like just heading the same direction. We're not very creative about our sin, are we? We just, a lot of us, we just keep heading the same direction, whether it's, it's anger or food or lust or gossip or pick any one of a number of other addictions. We keep going back to the same thing again and again and again. And, and, and we can go to those sins, we can go to those places apart from the presence of God and we can think, how did I end up here? Well, one of the ways we end up there is we're not paying attention to the warning signs. Not paying attention to the warning signs that God sends us. Oh, you're heading that direction again. You need to be careful. See, see we can look. If we pay attention to those ruts that we fall into, those directions we go, there, there's warning signs that God puts in our way of you might be heading the wrong uh, a place that's apart from my will. And, and those can be a lot, lots of different ways, but some of the warning signs God sends us are feelings and fruit. He can, we can be aware of our feelings that we might be headed a place uh, apart from the direction, the will uh, of God. There's a little acronym called HALT. And it, and it means hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And, and people pull that up as a reminder of, you know, when I'm feeling one of these things, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it's not a good time to make decisions. I might not be able to trust myself. Because I'm in this place of vulnerability when I'm hungry or angry or lonely or tired. And the things I reach for might not be the things of God. So I've got to be extra careful when I'm in that vulnerable place. Are we aware of the warning signs God's sending us? Or, or the fruit? Fruit can be another warning sign. How do you know that you're walking in the ways and the will of God? He says throughout his word, there's going to be fruit of the ways we're walking. There's going to be fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If, if that's not marking my life, if that's not marking my actions, there's a warning sign there. I need to be careful and, and see, am I walking in a way that, that, that's apart from God's presence? What warning signs is he sending us if we're walking away from his presence? Are you paying attention to the warning signs so that you can say, oh, wait a second, this is a hint that I need to be called back to the presence and the way of God. 
So the people moved eastward, and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So why, why the construction details? Well, the people reading this in Israel, they, they had lots of stone everywhere. And so their houses would have been made of stone. And even if they were, they were poor, the, the foundations of the houses were made of stone with mud bricks on top. But this is far east of here. This is in a place called Mesopotamia. Far east where Babel is, and they didn't have a lot of stone. And, and, and the bricks that were made out in the, in the west, made of mud and were just dried in the sun, they weren't strong enough to build buildings with. And so they had to come up with a new technology to build buildings. And this is why the author, why Moses is saying, now, now this, listen, this is how they made buildings then. They had to come up with uh, bricks that were baked in the kiln, bricks that were baked. And th then they were strong enough strong enough to build those buildings. And then we get to what they're actually doing. And it says this, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. And you can look at this and say, Okay, we know God's going to scatter. So what was their sin? What was the problem here? Do you ever... Look at your own life and examine your own life and say, okay, what, what, do I have any sin here? What, what's the big problem? Where am I going astray? What, what is the big thing I'm doing wrong? And maybe the question we should be asking isn't, what is the sin? What's the big, but, but where are their hearts? And where is their worship? And, and as you look at this passage, and commentators look at this passage, and there's things that they point to for, for what the actual sin was. And, and we'll talk about those for a minute, but I think it goes deeper than that. When, when it, we talk about what that actual sin was, it says that they, were, uh, they say, we want to build this tower, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. And, and Commentators say, well, God told them to multiply. God, God told them to fill the earth. And here they are. They're disobeying the command of God. And, and I think that's a valid interpretation. And yet God, God said to fill the earth by what? By multiplying. And so what we don't want to take from this is that God is, not, is against urban development. That God is against cities and gathering together. Because when we read this story, do you know what happens in this story? It starts in a garden, right? But where does it end? It ends in a city. It ends in a city where God gathers his people together. So, so I think it's deeper than just a disobedience of God's mandate to fill the earth. And, and it also says, come let us build for ourselves a city uh, so that we may make a name for ourselves. And commentators point to pride. They, they wanted a good name and what they wanted was bad, but it, but scripture also says a good name is not necessarily a bad thing. A good name is to be desired beyond great riches, it says in Proverbs. See, see what they really wanted here was a name, and they wanted, they wanted significance of a good name. And they wanted the security of gathering together. The things they wanted weren't bad. Significance and security weren't things that were bad. They're actually needs that we all have. But how are they going to go about getting them? That's what I think we need to look at. In their heart and their worship, how are they going to go about getting them? I think there's something deeper here. They say that we may make a name for ourselves. See, 
The problem wasn't the good name. The problem was how they were going to get it. That we may make. If they just worked hard enough, if they just fought hard enough, if they just built high enough, they would make a name for themselves. See, that name was going to come from them. And that name was going to be for themselves. That name was going to be for them. And that's where it ended. It wasn't bad to want significance, but they thought it started and it ended with them. They thought the key to their significance, the key to their security, was them. See, here's the thing about a good name. A truly good name is given not by us, it's by God. A truly good name is given by God, and it's given for his glory. For his glory. Do you know God is a name giver? We, we see this throughout Scripture. You see this on and on throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, you see people like Peter and Paul and, and Barnabas. But, but even here in Genesis, we're going to see Jacob and Sarah and, and real soon after this, Abram, who are given new names. God is a name giver. He's a giver of new identity. In, in the next chapter, he's going to say to Abram, come to a land I'm going to show you. And he's going to say, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Here he is doing exactly what the people of Babylon were looking for. He's doing it for Abram. But, but Abraham isn't fighting for it. He's not building for it. You know what he's doing? He's following. He's following. See, the way to a good name is not through striving, it's through surrendering. The way to a good name, the way to significance in the kingdom of God is not through fighting, it's through following. It's, it's not through being outstanding, it's through being obedient. God invites Abraham, come to the land, I will show you. And that's how your name is going to be great. And this is really good news that we take, when we take confidence in a name that God has given us, rather than a name that we have given ourselves. Because then it's secure. Then it's secure. See, a good name is always going to come under attack. You know, the, the good name that we try to fight for and build for ourselves, it's always going to come under attack. The reputation and legacy we try to set for ourselves, no matter how, uh, how cleanly we try to walk, how good we try to be, there will always come others who come, come to attack it. I, I used to think if, if I just walk well enough, if I just make all the right choices, then nobody's ever going to be against me. And that's not true. Jesus walked perfectly. And his name is used as a curse. Jesus walked this road perfectly. And he was crucified on a cross. See, we can't think that we're going to go through life and work for a reputation that's never going to be tarnished because there, there will come attacks and there will come judgments against our reputation. That's why it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to men. That's what the Gospel of John tells us, is that Jesus didn't trust, entrust himself to men because he knew what was in men. Who did he trust himself to? The implication is he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself to God. See, here's the thing. When we try to build up our own name, what's going to happen when we falter? If we've got a name based in our own strength, what happens when we're weak? If we've got a name based in our own rightness, what happens when we're wrong? If we've got a name based in our own success, what happens when we fail? 
We need to name an identity that's based not in who we are, not in what we've done, but in who he is and what he's done. And this is the name that he's given us. That's what he gives to Abram. Abram's name means exalted father. And he changes it to Abraham, father of many nations. Who would give a name, father of many nations, to a guy who's childless? Only God. That's not a name that Abraham can wrestle for himself and work towards for himself. It's a name that only God can give him. And it's a name that when he says you can't say that name without pointing to the glory of what God's done. The glory of who he is. That's the name that God promises us as his people. Look, I want to point you to one place this is shown so beautifully in Scripture. Isaiah 62. It says this about the redemption of Israel. The people of God. Here's what it says. The nations will see your vindication. And all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. Who's going to give it? That the mouth of the Lord will bestow. No longer are they going to call you deserted. No longer are they going to call your name desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. What does that name mean? My delight. God's delight is in her. And your land will be called Beulah, married. Why? Because of what they've done? No, for the Lord will take delight in you. You're going to be named by his delight in you. And your land will be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. You see, the name that's secure, the name that's going to stand against any attack, is the name that God gives us, that God gives us, our identity in him. And it's a name based on what he's done. Where are you finding your identity this morning? Where are you finding the name, your name this morning? Where are you getting your significance? Is it in what you're building or in what he has built of your life? Is it in what you would call yourself and strive for yourself and work for yourself? Or is it in the work that he has done for you? So that's some of what is in their heart. And then what's in their worship? Just like we looked at their heart, what's in their worship? I want to look at what's, what are they actually building here? We say in a city and a tower, a big deal. But what are they actually building? They say, come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So archaeologists have been digging in Mesopotamia and, and they found when this technology of kiln-dried bricks, of kiln-fired bricks started, it started about the end of the fourth millennium. And they look at the buildings that were built in this area of the world at this time. And when they talk about building a tower, here's what they're talking about building. They're talking about building a ziggurat. In Mesopotamia, they would build these towers, and they were stacked towers of ever-decreasing levels. Looked kind of like a pyramid, but they were full on the inside. They weren't empty on the inside. They weren't a tomb. There were a tower that went up. And we know that this is, we believe this is what they were referring to in Genesis chapter 11. Because this is what they built in that area of the world. And also because this is how they talked about those things. 
You know, you can go to other ancient documents, not just the Bible, but other ancient documents, and it talks about these towers. And you know what it says? It says they built a tower that reached to the heavens. Exact same phrase that is used here in Genesis chapter 11. They describe it the same way. So this is why we think this is what they were building. These towers that reach to the heavens. And you know, when they build these ziggurats, when they build a city with these ziggurats, a city, we think of a city with apartment complexes and sky rises and where people gather and live. A city in those days wasn't where people lived. It was a gathering of, of buildings, administrative buildings, all that were around a, a temple. And, and the most prominent building in those cities was a tower like this. And, and these towers were built and dedicated to particular gods, gods of the stars or the sun or the moon. So what could have been going on here was idolatry at Babel. What probably was going on here was idolatry at Babel. That's what most scholars think. And yet at the same time, we're not told what god they were worshiping. Even if they were trying to worship the true god, there's a problem with their worship we're going to see. So they built these ziggurats, these towers, and, and the main feature of a lot of these, here's a photo of one that they've un uncovered in that area of the world. A main tower of a lot of these was stairs or ramps that led up to the top. And there's an artist's rendition of what that particular one might have looked like when it was fully built without ruins. And it would lead up to the top, to a small gathering at the top. But this wasn't, the, the, the point of the top of this building, that wasn't a place that people would go. Where people went to worship was the temple that was down at the bottom. The house at the top, do you know who that was for? That was for the God. That was not so that the people could go up. That was so that the God would come down. Because what they wanted when they built this, what they wanted more than anything was God to come down. And we can understand that, can't we? What do you want more than anything in your life but God to come down, to make a change, to show up in our lives? Don't we want that, God to come down? That's what they wanted. They wanted God to come down. And so they built this house at the top of the tower, and they put a table in there, and they'd spread it with food to feed the God. And they'd have clothes up there to dress the God. And there'd be a bed in that building so that the God could rest. Because the idea was that the gods have to travel between the realms, and so we're going to put this place up to draw them in so that they stop here on their way to other realms. It's kind of like a rest stop, right? You know, rest stops. I remember rest stops when I was a kid. We'd be traveling on the highway, and we'd stop at these rest stops. And as a kid, you're just so anxious for the trip to be done. When are we there? When are we going to get there? But as parents, you need the break, right? So we're not there yet, but we're going to stop at the rest stop. And I remember rest stops, what they were when I was growing up, was a place of like pizza that tasted like cardboard and, and gas station coffee that was horrible. And now they're not like that anymore, right? Now there's Starbucks signs and everything. See, see the thing about rest stops nowadays is, is they used to be where we stopped when we're on the way to somewhere else. You know what they're trying to do with rest stops now? They're trying to make rest stops a destination. Have you noticed this? They make them nice. They make them places. They make them like a cafe, where you want to sit and linger, and it's actually nicer to be in. There's more than just one map to figure out where you are. Stay and linger a while. And, and you know where they've really mastered this is the South. I didn't know this until my family took a trip south. And they know how to do this. We went, to, we went on a trip with another family. We went to, uh, and spent the day at this water park and everything. And then on our way back, we're all tired, but we went out of our way 
to go somewhere. We went out of our way to go to a gas station. And I'm like, come on. We're all tired. We've all been in the sun too long. And we went 15 miles out of our way to go to a gas station. We had it nearly like 40 minutes on the trip to go to a gas station. Here's what I found out, though, is that when we got there, it wasn't just any gas station. It was Bucky's. If you've been in the South, maybe you've heard of Bucky's. Yeah, a, a few people have. This is my first experience at Bucky's. Bucky's is not just a gas station. Bucky's, one location, has the world record for the largest convenience store. They also, there's another location that is the world record for the largest car wash. This is what Bucky's looks like on the inside, one place. They've got everything you could ever imagine that you could ever want. They've got everything that you didn't know you needed. You show up here, and you didn't know you needed, but now you need it. This is, the picture's a little fuzzy, but the one on the left is the, the wall of beef jerky. They've got only over 20 flavors of beef jerky. And then I found out they have, they're, they're really known for their banana pudding, and I love banana pudding. And I was why is this gas station not just a stop along the way, it's a destination? You know why? Because Bucky's, they know me. <laughs> they got my number. Man, beef jerky and banana pudding, you've got me. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is for you, trust me, Bucky's has it. This is not just a place to stop, this is a destination. Because you know what Bucky's knows? They know we're consumers. They know we've got things we need, and they know we've got things that we want. And you know the problem with the worship of the people of Babel is that they treated God the same way. See, they wanted God to come down, but you know what they ended up doing? They dragged God down to their level, and they said, you know what, we're going to make a way stop for God. We're going to make this place where God can get his needs met where God can get everything he wants. And all of a sudden, their worship wasn't about meeting with God. Do you know what it was about? It was about feeding God and about clothing God and about meeting his needs, about housing God. And all of a sudden, God wasn't so much somebody to be revered and above and higher than us. He was somebody with a lot of power, yeah. So a God who, somebody who could do something for us, yeah. But, oh, you know what? We could do something for him, right? And that's why they built these, so that God would come down and would do what they wanted. See, there should have been a warning sign for them. This should have been one of the warning signs that they were far off track about who God was, that their God started to look a whole lot like them. We can look at the ancient world and look at Genesis 10 when it spreads out and we look at the world today and we say, why are there all of these areas where they don't actually know who God is? Why did God allow all these places for, for people to be at where they don't actually know who God is? Do you know what? It didn't start that way. When people got off the ark, everybody, the entire world, when they got off the ark, they knew who God was. They knew who he, he was serious about sin. They knew who he was holy. They knew he was mighty. They knew who he was. And then they spread out. And do you know what happened? They forgot. They forgot who he was. 
Coming off the ark, everybody knew him. And then they didn't because somewhere along the way they got the idea that building the bigger thing was more important than knowing God. Pursuing the next earthly treasure was more important than knowing God. That, that getting more for themselves was more important than knowing God. And you know what God became? A way to get all that. A way to get a good name. A way to get, get what they wanted. And that's the way God fit into their lives. He was a creature to be manipulated. He was a creature that was brought down to their level. That we can do something for. They were once familiar with God. And then they forgot. And slowly but surely, they forgot who God was. And, and, and the question is, has to be posed to us. Are, are, do we forget who God is? Here, here's what scholar John Walton says about this. He says, we all have at least a seed of paganism within us. A seed of the same thing that they had at Babel. He says, we've got a seed of that in us. When we view God as limited, when we try to get him to respond to us on our terms, when we view him as needing us or our abilities, and when we, or when we try to make him do what we want him to, when we want him to. These are all ways that we diminish who God is, that we bring him down to our level. I think we've got to ask ourselves, are there ways that we bring God down to our level and make him look just like us? Ask yourself this morning, are there ways I, I expect God to respond to me on my terms? Like, like maybe I want him to work a miracle in my life. I want him to fix this situation, but I, I don't want him to discipline me. I don't want him to purify me. I want him to show up and show off and do what he does and change everything. Change everything, Lord, except me. I want him to show off his power, but with no strings attached. And I've become so concerned with what I want him to do that I don't really care what he wants to do. Or, or in what ways do I think God needs me? Are there any ways that we think God needs, needs us? I mean, we think, no, come on, I wouldn't say that. No, we wouldn't say it, but do we think it? Do we act like it? Do we think God owes us something when we, when we add up all the good stuff that we've done over the last few weeks or a few months been going to church regularly and given money and served and prayed a lot and opened my Bible a lot. And life just doesn't seem to be going the way I want it to. God, what's the deal? I'm holding up my end of the bargain, God. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And you're not holding the end up, your end up of the bargain, God. Are there ever ways we put expectations like that on God? That he owes us something? That what I've done for him lately racks up a bill that he's got to come through and pay. Or, or when I think I owe something to God that I can pay. You know how when, you, when we go to those ruts, when we go to those sins, when we go to those patterns that we were talking about? Do you know what sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, I've been in those patterns in my life, what happens when I'm in that place? How did I end up here again? God forgive me. And I might start that initial confession, but then I wait for a while to go back to God. Then I wait to ask him for anything else. Then I wait to talk to him a whole lot. Because you know what I want to do? I want to get a few days under my belt where I've been opening my Bible, where I've taken the initiative. 
Get a few days under my belt where my thought life has been in order, where it's been under my control. I, I want to get a few days under my belt so that I can pay God back for the attention I want for him. And do you know where you, when you first came to God, you came empty-handed? You know, every time we come to God now, we still come that way. We're still empty-handed. He doesn't need anything from us. There is nothing we can pay him back to earn his attention, to earn his redemption. He just freely gives it. But we don't bring anything to him. Empty-handed is the way we always come. Or do, maybe I don't think God needs me, but are there ways I try to make him do what I want him to do? When I want him to do it. Maybe I, if I give more time or more money or, or, or more attention to God, maybe he'll bless me in the way that I've been wanting him to bless me. If, or we try to bargain with God. If God, if you just do this in my life, I promise I'm going to straighten up. I promise I'm finally going to get it together. I promise I'm finally going to be consistent, God. And we try to bargain with God. God doesn't make bargains. He pursues us. And we respond. Or do we try to make him do what he wants by the way we pray? There's a lot of good ways to pray. We can turn our attention to God's promises. But then we can begin quoting those promises if we're not careful. We can begin quoting them as a formula to pray in. Man, I'm just going to claim God's promise over this area of my life because that's what I want for him. It's not a bad thing to claim God's promises, but God is not a box to unlock. It's not a formula to figure out. He's a God to be in relationship with. And so claiming promises and praying in Jesus' name Binding certain spirits, all these things, these are, these are good and right ways to pray, but not if we treat them as a formula. Because our God isn't contained, our God isn't figured out. He is holy, other, and separate, and almighty, and apart from us. And when we pray, we come to him with nothing on our hands. Pleading to the only God who has everything we need. And we don't come to him with a formula to figure out. We, we come responding to the relationship that he invites us into. So how do we counter all this? How do we counter this formulas and this, this trying to manipulate God? Uh, if you've been following along in the devotional that we've been reading as a church, New Morning Mercies, the last few days, and, and I think ongoing, he's been going through the phrases of the Lord's Prayer. And you look at that prayer, teach, praying the way Jesus taught us to pray. And we can turn that prayer into formula too, so we've got to watch it. But look at the heart of the prayer that Jesus tells us. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who is mightier, who is holy, who is other. Our Father who is so much higher than us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is about your name, God, not our name. This is about your glory, God, not our glory. This is the start and ending point of our lives, Lord, is you. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, not mine, Lord. You do what you want to do in my life, Lord, not what I want to do in my life. 
And that doesn't mean we don't pray for the things that we need and don't pray for the things that we want. And yet we submit ourselves to the God of all creation and submit his ways as higher and his thoughts as higher and surrender ourselves to him. What did the people of Babel want more than anything else? They wanted a God who came down. And then he does. And then he does. But the Lord came down. Just like they wanted, the Lord came down. Except he's not going to come down in a way they expect. It's actually not the God they thought who was coming down. It wasn't the God who could be manipulated or pampered or who needed anything they had. It was the one true God. The God of all creation came down. And he looked at their city and he looked at their tower. And he said, if his one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And we can look at this and it sounds like God is trying to rain on their parade, right? Man, they're doing something fantastic and God is just shutting it down. Isn't he awful? No, no God isn't worried about that. God isn't threatened by what they're doing. He's not scared of what they're doing. But he sees where it's going to lead. He sees where it's going to lead. He says, they've started something here. They've started something dangerous. This is a people unified, and they're unified in opposition to my will and my ways and my intention for their life. And if they keep going down this road, it's going to end in destruction. And you can actually look through the course of the Bible and see where this road is going to end. Because this is far from the last time Babel is mentioned. This is far from the last time we see Babylon. Throughout the pages of Scripture, Babylon is held up as the enemy of God. As a group of idolaters, as people set against the will and attentions of God from beginning to end. Until it all gets all the way to the Revelation. And it calls Babylon a harlot, a prostitute. A prostitute that's a place of all kinds of evil and immorality and self-indulgence and self-glorifying. A place that persecutes the followers of the true God. That's where this is going to lead. And the beginning's right here. The beginning is right here with an inaccurate view of who God is. And so God scatters them. And it's not a destruction and it's not he's a killjoy, it's his mercy. He says, this is where this is going to lead, so I'm going to spread you out, so you have to rely on me and not yourselves. And in this place of scattering, we see God's mercy. See, in this place, when they gather together, we see how wrong they are about who God is. And you know what God's going to do next? Is he's going to reveal again who he is. So by the end of this chapter and into the next chapter, what's needed is a new revelation of who God is. So they really understand, once again, who the true God is. And so God comes down. God comes down and he calls out one man and one family out of these idolaters. One man, Abraham, who used to worship in a false way, whose heart used to be far from God. And he calls him to himself. And he reveals himself through covenant, through an agreement Not of what Abraham has to do, but of what God will do for him. And God comes down, not because in a way we've earned it, 
But simply because he's a merciful God, he's full of grace, and he pursues his people no matter how many times they run east, no matter how many times they run far from him. And ultimately, our longing for God to come down is fulfilled, just not in the way we expect. You can trace this through the whole of Scripture, too, and I just want to point us to one place. Luke 1, 68 says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come down to his people and redeemed them. He has come down to his people and redeemed them. I had somebody ask me one time, what makes, this, what makes your God different than any other God of any other religion? Why can't all gods be God? Isn't that what our culture is asking? Why can't every God be God? Allah and the, and the God of Islam and the, and the God of all these other, and, and Buddha. Why, why can't every God be God? Because there's only one God who came down. And he came down ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. He came down ultimately not so that we could meet his needs, but so that he could meet our needs. Our needs for redemption and our need for rescue. And the question is, have you responded to the real God who came down? He's come down because you needed him. Not to do what you want to do, but to do what you've always needed. To call you into relationship with himself. We're called in the new covenant to surrender to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then God, through sending Jesus, you know what he's ultimately going to do is he's going to redeem Babel. You know, we can look at this and God scatters and gives people different languages and they're never going to be unified again. And yet ultimately what God does is he uses this very thing and he uses it for his glory. And you flip years down the road to Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit is going to come upon God's people, and they're going to speak in tongues. They're going to speak all these different languages that used to divide. They're going to speak those languages, and they're going to call people to the one true God again. And we can trace that all the way down to Revelation, where God, these people that he has scattered, he will one day draw together. Revelation 7 says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And what God is ultimately going to do for those who surrender their lives to him is draw this divided people together so that they're not unified against the purposes of God, but under the person and lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And God, we're humbled by it. We're humbled by the ways that we as much as we try to seek you, the ways that we can stray, the ways that we can put on you our own ways, we can expect you to be fickle or have needs just like we do. We can expect you to want to be bartered with and bargained with. 
God, I thank you that you remind us again and again that we started coming to you with empty hands. And that we still have nothing worthwhile to offer you. All that we have to offer you, Lord, are these lives and hearts that you died to buy back to yourself. Jesus, I thank you for your blood shed for us. I thank you for your life poured out for us. I thank you that you didn't stand far off from a people who rebelled against you, but that you came down. And you came down to call us back to yourself. God, we long to respond to that call today. Lord, do in us what we can't do in ourselves. Set our hearts and our minds on you alone, the one true God. Help us get a right view of you, God. In this day and in this week. God, we lift you high as the only God. As our Father in heaven. And your name is set apart and holy. Lord, and we want to participate with you in keeping it that way. God, save us from bringing, trying to bring you down to our level. God, we thank you that you are always higher. That your thoughts are always higher. Your ways are always better. And God, we submit to those ways in our lives today. We trust you that as we surrender to you, you will make all things right. And God, we thank you that you win against every opposition that's set up against you, against everything that comes against your name. You win against that. And your victory is sure. And as your people, we can know that's true for us. We can know, Lord, that no matter what we face with you, we face victory. And so, God, we love you, and we ask you to call our hearts back to yourself today. In the holy and precious and high name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand to your feet, Grace, and let's worship him together.